The next patient is a 63-year-old female who had abdominal pain, some bloating, nausea, and bloody stool. She underwent a GI evaluation. She had a lesion at the hepatic flexure. She was seen by surgery. She had a CT scan that did not show any significant metastatic disease, but at the time of surgery, she underwent a right colectomy, and she was found to have uh, abnormality at the anterior wall of the duodenum and some tumor involving pericolonic fat adjacent to the large tumor mass that was resected. Her final pathology staging was T3N2M1. The patient was treated with Zelox and Avastin, and we discussed the fact that she had residual disease that the surgeon was quite certain was probably fairly significant, which is why I gave her the Avastin. So she had Zelox, Avastin. She tolerated this therapy remarkably well. I had originally seen her and started therapy in June of 07. In April 08, we talked about discontinuing treatment and that there was certainly going to be a risk for her having recurrent disease. She was very eager to take a break from treatment. And we discussed the possibility of recurrent disease and that she was going to need close follow-up. She did remarkably well. And as of November of 08, I saw her back. She had a CAT scan. CAT scan was negative. Her performance status was excellent. All her laboratory data was normal. Within the next three months, she started losing some weight. She came into the hospital in March with progressive abdominal pain. She had a CT scan showing biliary duct dilatation, a mass in the region adjacent to her prior surgery. And she had a blockage involving the pancreatic ducts. She had extensive laboratory abnormalities with the elevation of alkaline phosphatase, amylase, lipase, bilirubin. She had biliary stenting that improved her jaundice, and she was seen in surgical consultation for evaluation of this mass, which was primarily involving the second portion of the duodenum. She underwent an exploratory laparotomy, and subsequently she had a pancreatic duodenectomy with resection of the tumor, which was involving the duodenum, the jejunum, and the pancreas, the head of the pancreas. She tolerated this surgery exceptionally well. She is back in today. She has still negative CAT scans. She has returned with normal laboratory data. Her appetite's improved. I had seen her once before postoperatively, and she was doing beautifully. Today, she was also doing well, but towards the end of our interview, described some abdominal pain, not associated with nausea, vomiting, no diarrhea, no bloating of her abdomen. And her exam today was quite benign, but clearly this abdominal discomfort is a little bit of a concern. So just to try to put this complex case in perspective, initially, she gets Zelox, Bevacizumab for non-measurable disease that you knew was there. Yep. She does well on it. Any problems with hypertension or anything no, on the bed? No, okay. no, she did remarkably well on this treatment. And how long was she on that? She was on that for about eight months. And then you just, it was stopped? It was stopped. And then at some point she developed progression? She went nine to ten months after that, off therapy, doing well, excellent performance status, fully active. So I'm going to hit you up again, Dan, with the CO8 and say... Another thing I thought about was all the controversy about how long you use bevacizumab in the metastatic setting, the issues, the paper that you published by Axel Grothy on the bright tumor registry suggesting greater benefit when you continue Bev and switch chemo. Do you think that CO8, again, showing the transient effect in some way 
supports that paradigm, metastatic disease. I do think that. I think that the themes in the advanced disease model with the Bright Registry and BBP and the CO8 all suggest that there are certain features of anti-angiogenic agents that require them to be present for them to be active, that they don't have a lasting effect, and also that when the angiogenic switch gets turned back on, especially in metastatic people, they may actually do worse for a period of time. So I do think that we have lessons to be learned. I think there's some pragmatic issues regarding duration of therapy, but as you said, perhaps we'll have a different drug, a TKI that does the same thing, or a Flibercept, or some other drug with less toxicity, perhaps. Yeah, particularly a TKI that has less toxicity, although I don't know if there are any. The closest drug is probably a Flibercept, but it still has the class activity with hypertension and other things. What is it? I like the name, though. It's VEGF-TRAP. Oh, VEGF trap. And what's yeah. it called? Flibercept? A Flibercept. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's cute. Another drug that I can't pronounce the name of. One important feature of this lady's natural history is you talked earlier about patients' biology driving treatment decisions. Yep. Yep. In this particular lady, two things. One is she can't always assume that a surgeon's going to be able to whack out an enormous part of her body to debulk her. And the second, she had a negative CT in November of 08 and was obstructing with pancreatitis and biliary obstruction in March. So this has declared itself not to be the least aggressive tumor around. So we felt that this lady really needed real therapy, even if it's non-measurable. And how often do you see, Phil, patients with colon cancer where they kind of die and have a lot of morbidity just in the belly without outside the abdomen major problems, kind of comparable to what you might see in breast cancer with a real aggressive local course? Yeah, I think that it's not something that's particularly common that I don't see. She has had no evidence of hepatic or pulmonary metastasis at all. There's been no further evidence of any kind of bowel obstruction other than extrinsic disease. And so her presentation was a little unusual. And I was actually kind of stunned when I got called to see her in the hospital in March and she was so ill and she had been fine just during the holidays. So yeah, Dan, this sounds to me like maybe a situation where I'd be really concerned in terms of morbidity from what's going to happen in her belly. Absolutely. We told her she could not afford to let it progress there. And one of the things that we did talk about was with a couple of the patients was as you succeed in some of the more chemosensitive sites like the primary, the liver, and the lung, you see more of these. And you also see more brain metastases, specifically cerebellar. So you alter the natural history of the disease. So what are you thinking about in terms of therapy, Phil? So she's KRAS wild type, and we talked about giving her fulfirian's tuximab. And what about you know, trying bevacizumab again? I mean, she never progressed on it. I don't know whether you consider right. her stable disease or what. That was exactly the discussion we had. Were those 9 to 10 months when she was asymptomatic a product of her having a response to treatment, or was it just surgery and disease that hadn't changed into a different kind of growth phase? Yeah, I guess the issue, Dan, of the possibility of bowel perforation with bevacizumab maybe is going to be out on the table more with a patient with this kind of problem than the average patient. Absolutely, because as you know, they tend not to perforate through the tumor. But as with ovarian cancer, you see a higher rate of perforations due to multiple prior surgeries. And she's had two big ones. Two big ones. And had a predictable relapse right where the tumor was peeled off her duodenum. How do you think she'll do if you do give her chemo, cetuximab, Phil? How do you think she'll deal with the dermatologic issues? Well, we talked about that at length. And she and I have had a conversation, to go back to your point, about overall prognosis and what you're looking at. 
at least a year ago, she and I talked about the extent of her disease and the disease coming back and it being incurable. She's a realist, and she asked us if this was actually worth doing. And so we got into quite a discussion about the rash. We anticipated that she would get it and that that would be a good sign. I think that she's crossed the Rubicon. She wants to get treatment, and she's comfortable with it. And one of the things that we talked about with the patients is the changing paradigm for colorectal cancer, because as my eyes scan the natural histories of these patients, we have people out two years, five years, six years, four years. These are not atypical numbers. No. What's her support system? Her support system is excellent. She has two very devoted, intelligent, involved daughters who ask great questions. I think they defer to her. They don't try to boss her around. They're comfortable with her making her own decisions and are fully supportive. I think she's very fortunate. In fact, they volunteered to leave the room so that we could talk to her directly. And she said, no, you're not. You're not leaving. Interesting. So I just want to take a deep breath and ask the two of you what your thoughts are about this experience today, starting with you, Phil. For me, it was tremendous. I think the patients got a lot out of it. I certainly did. I enjoyed every minute of it, to tell you the truth. Dan? Same here. Last night I had dinner with Phil and family members. Saw six really nice people who are dealing with their disease, being cared for in a very unique environment. Phil should be very proud of his office. Obviously, the staff is supportive of each other and supportive of the patients, and I think that they feel like they have a home. Yeah, I think that most of the people that are in our office, we've been together for a long time, and they just get the message. They understand what people are going through. They understand about being flexible and about looking out for people's comfort. And it makes a difference in the day and it makes a difference in the way you take care of people. 